0: July 4th, 1776 is considered America's birthday. But given what we know about America's roots enslaving Black people and building systems of oppression after slavery was abolished, I think it's time for a rebirth. My name is Nona Jones and I am the founder of the Faith and Prejudice Movement. Nathan Rutstein once said that prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. The Faith and Prejudice movement exists to demonstrate our faith in God through the work of confronting and dismantling racism in America. This broadcast special features civil rights leaders, theologians, scholars, and advocates who have dedicated their lives and work to racial equity. I invite you to listen and learn so that we can mobilize our collective energy toward lasting change in this country. Our next conversation is with civil rights icon, Ambassador Andrew Young. Ambassador Young started out in ministry as a pastor before becoming a leading voice in the civil rights movement and confidant of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He served as the executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and was elected to the United States Congress representing Georgia. He was appointed as ambassador to the United Nations in the Carter administration and was the 55th mayor of the city of Atlanta. He joins us tonight to help us listen and learn about race in America. Ambassador Young, I am so grateful to have you. Uh, You are truly a living legend. And uh, before we even get into this conversation, um, I would love it if you could introduce yourself, you know, beyond the, the amazing credentials and degrees. Tell us about your family and where you were raised.
1: Well, I was raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I say I started in race relations when I was four years old because I lived in a neighborhood that had an Irish grocery store on one corner, an Italian bar on another corner, a Chevrolet dealership was around the third corner, and the fourth corner was the headquarters of the Nazi party. And so at four years old, uh, my father was taking me to my aunt who lived – two doors behind the Nazi party, and um, I started asking him why these people were heiling Hitler. And he said to me something I've never forgotten. He said, these are white supremacists, and white supremacy is a sickness. You know that God made of one blood all the nations of the earth. so." Don't worry about these people and their sickness. In fact, don't pay any attention to what they say. And whatever you do, don't ever get angry with them. You don't get angry with sick people. And I think that's what uh, has helped me um, survive for another 84 years uh, across. The world that um, my father's message was: don't get mad, get smart. Mm-hmm. That you, if you get angry with anybody, uh, the blood rushes from your head, and you'll do something stupid. Keep your head, keep calm, and your mind is the most powerful weapon you have and he was five feet four and he said you're never going to be big enough to beat up everybody mm. uh but if you stay calm you can hold your own thinking with anybody mm. and uh, you know and, and that's the way i grew up in new orleans and um i en- ended up uh Deciding when I left Howard University uh, that um, I had a college degree and I knew one thing was that I didn't really know anything relevant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that um, I didn't know what I was going to do with a college degree. My father was a dentist and the only thing I knew was I didn't want to be a dentist. <laughs> uh, and um, but I, I I had what is probably my closest thing to a truly religious experience, and it was nothing fancy. I was running to the top of a mountain in North Carolina, um, and on the way back from Howard University, and I, I ran up so fast that I could hardly breathe. And when I came, when I got my breath and came to my senses, uh, I looked out and everything seemed to be so beautiful. And what I realized then in that moment was that everything that I saw had a purpose. And, And I said, whoever made heaven and earth and everything has a purpose that I can see. So if there's a purpose for everything else on this planet, there's got to be a purpose for me. Mm. And I don't need to know what it is. I just need to do the best I can one day at a time and my life will take care of itself. And I think once I made that decision, uh, my life has been led by um, something I have later come to think of as the kingdom of God within you, uh, that everybody is equipped with a still, small voice, uh, and that um, if you listen, not to all of the fuss going on around you, but what is deeply within you, uh, you can make your way through this world, and you'll be led in the right direction, though nobody will think it's the right direction. Uh, but you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that's of the way I've lived. And nothing that has happened to me um, I mean, I decided there was something that I could do that nobody else could do. Mm-hmm. And if somebody else could do it, I didn't need to vote with So uh, I went to a little country well, I, I volunteered to work in Christian youth work with the National Council of Churches, and they didn't have, um, they sent me to Connecticut, and uh, the Council of Churches had not found a place for me to live, so they picked up the phone and called the seminary. And the seminary had a guest room, so I'm on a seminary campus, and I said, I walked to the dean's office, and I said, Excuse me, but you know, I'm working with the churches with young people, but I really don't know enough about the Bible. Can I sit in on a couple of classes? And he said, well, if you can sit in on three, I can give you a scholarship, you know, <laughs> and, uh, so I ended up getting a scholarship and, you know, e- everything has happened just when I needed it. And, um, and that's been true all through my life. And um, I count on it being true for a few more years.
0: Uh, I think it's going to be true for me. In the (laughs)
1: meantime, I married a little girl from uh, Marion, Alabama, uh, and we had four children. I have now. She died after 40 years of marriage. She died of cancer, uh, and. um, Two years later, I remarried, and I've been married 25, 24 years since then. Uh, I have four children uh, three girls and a boy, and um, nine grandchildren and one great grandchild. And um, they all seem to have found some way to be successful. Um, and I'm I'm quite uh, happy uh, with uh, life as it has led me along. Mm-hmm. But I did not want to be go into politics. <laughs> but um, I, I didn't want to go to work with Martin Luther King. Uh, but my wife was from Alabama, and she did not want to be in New York. I left my job in New York, sold my house, went back to Atlanta, and working for the United Church of Christ but my office was right across the hall from Martin Luther King's office and his secretary asked me to help him one thing he had a problem doing was answering all the mail that he got so I started out answering his mail and uh, I got to understand him and he began to appreciate the fact that I was writing almost what he thought ought to be answered and we got close and um, I followed him around the South uh, throughout the 60s until he was killed in 68. In uh, fact, I followed him all around the world. Uh, so that was a phenomenal education uh, and experience. And nobody wanted to run for Congress in the South because they were killing people for running. You know, Medgar Everson had been killed. Malcolm X had been killed. Martin Luther King had been killed. Bobby Kennedy had been killed. And uh, Harry Belafonte and I were talking and he said, you know, somebody needs to run for Congress in Atlanta. And I said, well, I'm looking for somebody. And he said, well, just quit looking and you run. <laughs> mm-hmm. And And, I, I got elected. and Then uh, Jimmy Carter decided he was going to run for president. And um, when he got elected, he asked me to go to the United Nations. And I didn't want to go to the United Nations particularly, but nobody else. He said, you're the only one who was with Martin Luther King. And if we're going to be serious about human rights around the world and be taken seriously, I need somebody who was with Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. and um, I was trying to get Barbara Jordan to go to the United Nations because I thought she would have been a great UN ambassador and better than me in every way and President Carter said she is but only one thing you'd have that she doesn't have and that's what we need and that's somebody who's associated with Martin Luther King because I wanna make human rights, you know, the cornerstone of uh, this administration, human rights and nonviolence. And that's that's probably the only four years in American history that uh, nobody, no American soldier got killed in battle. And no American soldier killed anybody in battle. And uh, we were able to, make peace with the Russians, uh, Egypt and Israel, uh, the Panama Canal, uh, started with South Africa, uh, and uh, completed Rhodesia and, and Namibia. Uh, and so it was, it, it all seems to work out when I just uh, follow the spirit.
0: Wow, Ambassador Young, I would love it. Your your life has been so rich, and I know you. You said you hope to have a a couple more years left. I think you have many because you don't look a day over forty two. Um, I true. wonder, <laughs> can you tell us uh, your lived experience? You grew up in a segregated America. What what was that like for you? For people who have no point of reference, or even for white people who didn't know what it was like to be a black person in a segregated America. What was that like?
1: Well, because my parents were both blessed with a college education and one of the first historically black colleges down south, and it was called Straight College in New Orleans. And um, it's now Dillard University. uh, I had two educated parents. Uh, who taught me to think my way through problems and don't ever get upset, don't look for trouble, stay out of the way of trouble, Uh, be very polite and respectful uh, of everybody. Uh, And um, my daddy said something to me, he said, you see, ivory soap is 99 and 44 100% pure. I said, yeah. I said, well, what's that got to do with me? He said, that's not good enough for you. You can't be 99 and 44, 100% right. Ivory soap is white and you're black. You've got to be 100%. You cannot cut any corners anywhere and survive. Uh, And so there was no need in arguing with him about it not being fair. I knew it wasn't fair, but That was the life that I had to live. And, um, my grandmother lost her sight when she was about 80 and she lived another six years. And that was between the time I was about eight and 14. And my job after coming home from school every day was to read the newspaper and the Bible to her. And every day she talked about death. And she fussed with God about keeping her here being a burden on the family. She was ready to go home and claim her reward. She saw death as a blessing. And so there was nothing for me to be afraid of. And Dr. King was the same way. He would laugh and joke about his death and yours. Uh, and he said, say, look, death is the ultimate democracy. You're going to die. <laughs> and he said, you don't have anything to say about when you die or where you die or how you die. The only thing, you ch- choice you have is what is it you're willing to die for? See? And if you haven't found something you're willing to die for, you're not fit to live anyway. Uh, and, but he said that not in any judgmental way because then he would start preaching your funeral. See, and he would say that uh, you know I know my days are numbered, uh, but um, reason I have all you young egotists around me is that um, when the bullets come at me, one of you all will be jumping in front of me, trying to take a pic- trying to get your picture in the paper, and you'll probably take the bullet for me. <laughs> and then he'd say, "But don't worry." I think I can preach even you into heaven. And he would start preaching your funeral. And he'd say every embarrassing thing he could think of about you, every every fault you have, he would put on the table before the Lord and say, but Lord, please give him a chance. He meant well. But his preaching of our funerals was more, more like... Uh, Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy. <laughs> but it he was unconsciously helping us to overcome our fears by laughing at the concept of death. And uh, it worked for the most part because we went through some crazy times and some crazy places where nobody in their right mind uh, would, would dare to go and yet all of us I mean, it really wasn't good sense to go to Birmingham, start in trouble in 1963. See, but in 1962, there had been 60 unsolved bombings of black people's homes. They just bombed their homes because they were nice homes. They little frame homes with what they'd have, a little garden with some azaleas and roses and a little grass. And white people resented the success of black people and they would just, in fact, they called Birmingham, Bombingham. And after bombing Fred Shuttlesworth, Reverend Shuttlesworth's church three times, and uh, he came over to Atlanta and said, look, I believe in nonviolence, but I don't believe in passive resistance we have to develop some aggressive nonviolence. Otherwise, sitting around here, we're gonna all get killed and don't know why. We just as well take the fight to Birmingham and have a showdown on how we're gonna to live together as bro- brothers and sisters. And so that's, that's what the civil rights movement was about. Now, it was so completely different than today because it took us three months almost to get a a good demonstration organized that uh, Martin Luther King could lead to go to jail. And we were trying to organize 500 people Uh, and uh, we didn't have cell phones in those days. We couldn't do anything on the radio. Uh, Because the radio, even the radio stations that catered to a black audience, would not make announcements about a civil rights meeting. Uh, And um, so, after three months, we had a a march scheduled. uh, And while five hundred and some people showed, uh, you know, signed up, when it came down to putting your life on the line. Only 55 people showed up. <laughs> yeah. And so nowadays, you know, with, um, cell phones and all of the magic that these young people have, they can get 55,000 people in 15 minutes. During the three months we were trying to organize, we were also developing an agenda. Yeah. Um, uh, so that we knew what we wanted, and um, Dr. King didn't want me to go to jail. Uh, He said, because he knew I had grown up in this neighborhood and was comfortable talking to white folk, he said, don't don't you know some white folk here in Birmingham? I said, I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. And he will see if you can find some. And I remembered that I had been at a conference in Michigan, and um, there was a delegation from the Episcopal Church there. And I happened to remember the name of the, and there was the director of Christian Education who was leading that delegation, and I called the Episcopal Diocesan House and I asked to speak with the director of Christian education. And it turned out it was the same lady that I had met in Michigan. And so I said, can you help me set up a meeting with uh, Dr. King and Bishop Murray? And she said, well, I can invite you over to meet with the bishop and you can see if you can tell him what kind of meeting you want to set up. So even before we started marching, Uh, we started sitting down with the clergy and the business community, all of which blamed us for starting trouble. Uh, and, uh, but we'd meet with them once or twice a week, uh, so that all the time the demonstrations were going on, there were also negotiations going on, but it wasn't so much bargaining as it was educating people. Helping people to see that, look, and Dr. King had a no-fault way of looking at race. He said, look, I can't help it if I was born black and you were born white. And there's, there's nothing we can do about that. But we were born in an unjust relationship. And what we're saying is that we need to rearrange the relationship between us so that instead of being an unjust relationship, it's a fair and free and equal relationship. That was pretty reasonable. We we didn't want to make any feel, and people don't change when they're guilty, when they feel guilty. Uh, so you have to have a kind of no-fault analysis because the truth of it is, uh, I remember one of the guys was Saying to Dr. King, "I, I just can't forgive these white folks. I, I, I they've, they've done us too bad." And and Martin looked at him and said, "You know one thing? I sure am glad you weren't born white." <laughs> See, and it, it hit him. Yeah, you know, it, he he didn't have any. I mean, he couldn't have done anything different if he'd been born white instead of black. Uh, He would want to be forgiven. Uh, And um, so it's it's just living through life in the South and being led from place to place without any plan. I mean, we were surprised after... after Birmingham, that um, the young people wanted to march to Washington and end segregation right now. Well, A. Philip Randolph in New York had been planning a march on Washington with Bayard Rustin and the NAACP and the labor unions. And we decided that instead of um, us marching to Washington by ourselves, Uh, We would go with uh, a Philip Randolph, and that took what was a southern black movement and moved it into being a national integrated movement. Uh, And um, we were far more powerful, and we would not have had a, a, a Civil Rights Act if we'd not done that. And so that also won Martin Luther King the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize. And um, coming back from the Nobel Peace Prize, we stopped off to see President Johnson. And um, he was saying that I know you need voting rights, and I want to pass a voting rights bill, but right now I just don't have the power. And what we we realized was he kept us waiting because he was in a meeting with all of the generals and Defense Department trying to get him to go into Vietnam. And so he was under pressure from the military side to push a war in Vietnam. And he just said, I don't have the power to take on civil rights right now. Uh, but I intend to do it before I leave office. But I thought it would be good for us to wait till, till he was ready. But Dr. King said, "Nope, we got to find a way to get this president some power." <laughs> and I, I, you know, I thought it was crazy because he wasn't any bigger than I am, and he was broke like I was. And I said, you know, he. he, he you Morehouse Negroes are so arrogant. How you gonna get the president some power? And he was serious and he just, he didn't, he said, I don't know, but we got to get this president some power. Well, two days after we got back to Atlanta, Mrs. Amelia Boynton came over from Selma and told us what was going on in Selma and said, you gotta come over there and help me. So on the second of January, we went over to help this lady who had been in Selma since she was a teenager, and she needed help. So we went over there to help her, and one thing led to the next, and then we had the march on, you know, to to Montgomery, and. Um, The president was on the television and said before the end of March, meeting with a joint session of Congress and making a speech introducing voting rights and ending his speech with, we shall overcome. And so, you know, we went from nowhere to a position of real change in the South uh, through the accidents of nonviolence. Now, I know it's very hard to see that, but it was because of the death of Medgar Evers in Mississippi and the assassination of Malcolm X uh, in New York and the death of Reverend James Reeb who came down to Selma to help us. And then Mrs. Viola Liuzzo, who was the wife of a Teamster organizer in Detroit that was just driving back after the march from Selma to Montgomery and got shot. And so these deaths were tragic, but they were people who gave their lives uh, to bring about the changes that we enjoy now and um dr king used to say there's no remission of sins without the shedding of innocent blood and this was the innocent blood that was shed that got us this far and so i think that uh, right now uh, the deaths that we have seen on television is the sacrificial blood that is going to lead us to change. And it has awakened not only this nation, but the entire world. So these young people have not died in vain. And their deaths, you know, I finally used to say, and and Dr. King used to say all the time, well, you sure are better off if you get killed you know, doing something worthwhile with your life. Then, if you just get hit by somebody drunk crossing the red, cross the street, you know, and against the red light, and you die for nothing. These deaths that we experience are holy deaths. They're sacrificial deaths. They have awakened a whole planet to think about and to try to understand that the way we are living, rich and poor, black and white, male, female, young and old, that, that these divisions are artificial divisions, and that we are all children of the same Father in heaven. And we've got to find a way to structure our relationships here on earth uh, to reflect the fact that we're all children of God.
0: Uh-huh. Um, a few minutes we have remaining, Ambassador Young. I would love it because what you're saying is so rich. I would love it if you could share with the the many white people who are watching and who are listening. And, you know, they're at an inflection point, right, where they're thinking, OK, how do I how do I serve this moment? Like this is a moment. What do I do? Um, thinking back on how you how you help to galvanize and mobilize the masses of people toward change. What can individuals, white people in particular, do in this moment right now?
1: Well, I think in this moment right now, um, well, the reason Harry Belafonte pushed me to run for Congress was the district I ran in was majority white. And in order for me to win, a significant portion of the white population would have to agree that we could work together and make the city better. Well, we've done that here in Atlanta. And um, I mean, Atlanta was a half a million people when I started out here. And now we're five and a half million. And we've got the world's busiest airport uh, we uh, well, we did before the virus. Uh, but we brought the Olympics here and we had the biggest Olympics ever. And we shared the wealth in the Olympics. Minority businesses and contractors got 41% of all of the business done in the Olympics. And um, we have tried to share the growth economically. Uh, Georgia State University here in a downtown Atlanta graduates more black students than any other school in the world. Uh, and um, the Georgia Tech graduates more black engineers and more female engineers uh, than any school in the world. Mainly because Georgia Tech and Morehouse have a dual degree program. Uh, and uh, we live together as brothers and sisters, we work together and that has made this city work. Uh, And so I think that as we come to an election, we, we have to ask who are the candidates that are gonna bring us together and help us to face a very complex future. Now, it's a complex future But it's also a blessed future. Um, I've been reading a book, uh, The Future is Faster Than You Think, uh, by a fellow by the name of Diamandis. And basically what's happening, yes, we're having problems. Uh, Every day there are problems, but there are also opportunities emerging every day. I mean, there's, well, it hadn't been long ago. It was 30 years when I was, ago, I was elected mayor. Um, No more than that now. Well, um, but anyway, it's been a good while. But we had four stories of mainframe computers that we did the city's business on. Now... Um, my little cell phone has more computer power than four stories of mainframe capacity uh, in the city 30 years ago. And so one of the reasons why uh, we can talk like this and you can send this all over the world Um is the changes in electronics. There are changes that are happening now that are going to be multiplied uh, in the future. And one of the things we learned about cell phones and computers, I think they called it Moore's law, that the, the more powerful they got, the cheaper they got. So every time they double their capacity, they became half as, you know, less expensive, and so that you can, you can carry around uh, almost all the computer power you need. We're gonna have. We're gonna have by 2023. Uh, they're gonna be flying cars. Uber has ordered flying cars to start in 2023. That's two and a half years in Los Angeles and Dallas where they're going to do the trial runs and it won't be long before they'll be in Atlanta uh, or some version and everything that we see and think, in fact, um, I think we have demonstrated in science and we have demonstrated in religion uh, and social science that If you can conceive it and believe it, we can achieve it. So we have to conceptualize, what is it that we want of this life? Now, one of the first things I want is I wanna get people out of jail who don't belong in jail. We have more people in prison than any other nation in the world. And so when they say unfund the police, that's not precise enough. I want to. I want to get the young men and women out of jail. I went to a women's prison uh, not long ago, and uh, every last one of these women, every one of them, was in jail because some man tricked her or betrayed her or put her in trouble, and. She's in jail serving time, and I don't know what happened to him. Uh, and um, there's nobody caring for the children. Well, women need to be cared, caring for the children, uh, and they don't need to be punished for making a mistake that a man put them in. <laughs> and um, And I would say that, well, our candidate for governor, uh, Stacey Abrams, grew up in Mississippi and she went to Yale to get a law degree in Spelman uh, and her brother, baby brother, who she says was smarter than her, h- had a drug problem, which normally if he were rich and white, he would have been treated in a sanitarium and would be doing something worthwhile now. but he's in, in jail and it's costing fifty to $55,000 a year to keep him in jail. She went to Yale Law School cheaper than that with the scholarship, see? So it doesn't make sense for a society to spend $50,000 a year to keep somebody in prison when you can make them an educated successful tax-paying contributor to the society for half that amount of money. So just we have to rethink the way we've been doing things. There's also the fact that uh, and the reason why young people are upset with police is the concept of police came from hiring somebody to catch the slaves that were running away. So there's a network of connection between slavery and and policing. Um, now, we have moved policing a long ways here in Atlanta, but we did it by having a police force that was half and half black and white, and but it was at least one third female. And what I learned was that men tend to use their brawn, but women use their brains. And we need more brains than brawn in law enforcement officers. Now that that doesn't mean we don't need men. It doesn't mean we that we, we're not gonna have, uh, you know, uh, a, a desegregated police force, gender and race wise. Uh, But, um, we're going to have to let law enforcement evolve. We're also going to have to do something about climate change because, um, well, it's beginning to get hot down here, but what worries me was that it was 65 degrees in the Arctic in January this year. That means all of that Arctic ice is gonna start flowing down through the middle middle part of the United States. And for the last 10 years, we have had floods uh, all along the Mississippi Valley. Uh, 31 states have flooded. Now, I grew up on New Orleans, in New Orleans and I grew up on the Mississippi River. so. I, I, I'm aware of that, and I I know that most people, you know, don't if it's not in your backyard, it doesn't bother you. But because I grew up there, and because I lost members of my family uh, in the floods and hurricanes that are coming, the fact that a hurricane came in June this year, and they don't normally come until August and September. It scares me. And so we have a lot of real problems that we have to address and think about. And we really don't have time to argue about race and class and creed. We need to each use our talents to the best of our ability to make this world more like the kingdom of God.
0: Wow. Ambassador Young, I cannot thank you enough um, for the wisdom that you have shared, for the history that you have shared, um, and even more than what you have shared. uh, On behalf of everyone who is watching, I just want to say thank you um, for the life that you have lived. Um, I pray that you have many, many more years ahead of you because we need your voice, we need your example, um, and I'm just so grateful for uh, all that you have done to prepare this next generation to carry the mantle and the torch of leadership. So thank you, sir, for joining us. Uh, And to everyone watching, thank you so much for joining us. I trust that you have been challenged as I have been. God bless you all. God bless you. We have been challenged, but more than challenged, we have been called. You are not watching this by accident. You are watching this because you have been called to be the change we so desperately need in this country. James chapter 2, verse 17 compels us as Christians to allow the works of our faith to demonstrate what we believe. So now, visit faithandprejudice.com for resources to put your faith to work. Thank you for watching.